that you were um, encouraged and rested and that you got what you needed out of that little bit of time. Um, boy, it's awfully short when it happens, though, isn't it? Right? And all of a sudden, we're right back. Um, you're part of the goal of the Christian life is to live in a way that you and I really don't need to enjoy vacation as much as everybody else. Does that make sense? Right? Like everything, like it's hard and it's heavy and you got work to do and there are things to be done. But there should be a little more joy and a little more peace and a little more, dare we say, fun in the life that you and I get to live on, on the daily, right? You and I should not be living for one or two weeks a year in order to feel like that's the best of what we have to offer. Those times of rest uh, and encouragement and just being able to focus in on family or family and friends are wonderful, but they should be a little less weighty for you and I. There is so much to be done. You are so important uh, to your job, to your family, to the things going on in this community. Uh, I am so glad to have everyone back with us, or at least some of you all back with us that we've missed the last couple weeks. The Lord has been good. He has been faithful. Uh, we got some things going on. We've got a lot of prayer requests floating right now through the church. So uh, be in prayer, grabbing a hold of some people, trying to figure out what's going on, and continue to be uh, helpful as you all have been so often. Uh, kids that have gone to camp, kids that have gone to the mission trip. Uh, I got to remind you all, as I do every year, uh, here in a couple weeks, if the Lord is at work, if He has done something, and you would like to give testimony to that uh, at the end of this month when we have Family Sunday, that gives you a couple weeks to process what God has done. If you would like to speak to that and have an opportunity to sing His praises about what He has done at camp, uh, how many do we have go last week? 13, 14? Right? 12? Right? That's a big bunch. We had uh, the week before, we had four on a mission trip. So I want you all to get used to uh, talking about what the Lord has done because doing it in the church is a very safe environment to talk about. It will lead you into how to do it out in the public where it's not quite as safe. We will be in Daniel chapter 3 this morning. Exiles, heroes, and examples. We've been looking at uh, mainly Daniel in the last month, but we're going to get a picture this morning of the other three. One of the greatest stories, one of the most known stories in all of scriptures where we'll be today, right? The fiery furnace. Boy, that's one of the first ones that is brought up all the time, right? This story, this picture of courage, uh, this picture of conviction, this picture of what uh, the Lord can do. And you and I are going to read through it again today. But before we get there, where have we been? Well, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, I want to remind you, we're talking of these young men. The names of our heroes, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, their names actually mean something. We talked in Sunday school this morning. What was the devil's name? What was his first name? Lucifer. And what does Lucifer mean? It is the light bearer, right? The bringer of light, the herald of God's glory. That was his job. His name had a purpose. Well, in, in God's sovereignty and Jewish culture, the name of these four had a purpose. The whole book is going to be God living up to their names. As they're exiled into Babylon, the first thing the, the Babylonian king tries to do is to rob them of their heritage. He wants all of their good stuff, but he wants them to be Babylonian. So one of the first things he does is he changes their names. Daniel is Belteshazzar. God is my judge to Bel protect his life, right? The next one, Hananiah is Shadrach. Yah protects, command of the moon God. Mishael or Meshach, who is like the mighty one or who is Aku? 
Azariah or Abednego, Yah will help or slave to the god Nebo. Our hero names, and when they come into this foreign culture, they want to start to pull apart. They want to take uh, what their Jewish culture brought with them. They want to take it out of them. The first thing they do is change their name. The real hero of the book is God Almighty. The rest of the book is God living up to their Jewish names. Today we will see that in Yah protects who is like the mighty one, like Nebuchadnezzar himself will utter these words. He will speak their names, their Jewish names. Yah will help. The hero of the book is God Almighty. In chapter 2 we talked about the worldly and wise. What do worldly people do? They're going to play it safe. What do worldly people do? They're going to be pushed past their limitations. What do worldly people do? They play the odds. They're going to hedge their bets. They're going to try to soften the blow to things. They're going to try to manipulate or maneuver through a system that is unholy and unrighteous, and they're going to do so in a way that is built to protect themselves. What are they also going to do? Ultimately, though, they're going to pay a price. The worldly wise, the ungodly, are going to pay a price. A price in judgment, a price in pain, a price when they do the things that they think they want to do, and yet the recourse happens. When God's hand moves or when God makes promises that just fall into place. God says, don't do this, we want to do it anyway. God says, don't lie, don't manipulate, don't cheat, don't steal, don't do these things, we want to do them anyway. And ultimately what happens is the godly... Uh, the, the ungodly or the worldly wise pay a price. It comes due. But Daniel in chapter 2 is the godly. What are the godly? They are God's plan of rescue. Daniel is going to rescue all of the wise men in Babylon by standing up for God's truth. And what's his plan look like? He's going to make a petition. He's going to speak to those in charge. He's going to ask for something. Then he's going to go into prayer and he's going to ask God and he's going to bring partners with him to do that, these three that we will see today. So I want to remind you of these things because their story comes together. In Daniel chapter 2, he gives the vision of the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. There are five kingdoms. There are four temporary. I want to remind you, who is the fifth kingdom? It is the church. It is Jesus Christ. It is the rock, the cornerstone. They come and they go, and yet there is a fifth You say, why is that important? Well, this story is 2,600 years old, and yet you and I are in it. That stone that's not cut from any earthly hand, that stone that hits the tip, the toes of that statue, and makes it crumble and blows it into the wind, that stone is you and I, the church, Jesus' kingdom. From that moment until now, the church has been growing, it has been expanding, it has gone all over the world, and it is unstoppable. Tyrants that hate it, countries that want to outlaw it, the book that you and I have that is God's word that can't be seen in certain places that they take and they rip apart so that people can have a page and memorize a page. Why? Because they can't have the whole Bible. Why? Because you can't even get them in there of that kingdom. God is using you no matter where you're at. If you're listening and understanding what is going on in your home, in your school, in your community, God is using you to build that kingdom, to build Christ's kingdom. That is an amazing, amazing promise of Scripture. 
Who is this Christ? He is the tested and the precious cornerstone in Isaiah 28 and 1 Peter 2. He is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Those around us do not want what he has to offer. He is a stone of stumbling. People stumble over him daily. His words, his love, his care, his discipline, truth, and the life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he is the foundation. In Deuteronomy 32, God is the rock, perfect, and just. And in Matthew 21, I didn't read this passage to you last, uh, last week, but I want to read it to you this morning. Jesus said to them, Have you not um the cornerstone prophesying who he was and what was going to happen? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This rejected cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Rejected, crucified, rejected by men. He is the cornerstone. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Certain part of salvation is falling into that cornerstone and being broken to pieces. What happens in that salvation, in that moment you and I come to the end of ourselves, what happens in that salvation is God starts to rebuild and put back together something better, something more beautiful, something stronger, something eternal, eternal life, joy, and peace. It's going against, it's falling against that stone. It's coming to the end of ourselves and leaning into the God of the universe as opposed to the judgment of when the stone falls and it crushes them and they perish. Jesus is that cornerstone. As we talk today about the kingdom of God, as we talk today in Daniel chapter 3 about what God is building in these young men, you and I need to understand that we are to be like them. He is building the same kind of things in our life too. Turn to Daniel chapter 3 with me this morning. The three in taking a knee, Daniel chapter 3. It ain't all the better roses, you understand? They're still captives. They're still not in charge. These men have been uh, brought into and ascended up the ranks very, very far. But it is still a hard place to be living. Look at chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the perfects, the, the, or the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image of King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Is this a big deal or is this not a big deal? This is a big, big deal. The recoil in a little bit is directly related to how big of a deal this was. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 4, and the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
Verse 8, therefore, at a certain time, uh, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, are king, uh, you, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Verses 1 to 13, what do we see? Well, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 has come true. This is what I told you last week. Like, why is there so much mystery in what God wants to do in your life and mine? Because we wouldn't be able to handle it. We wouldn't be able to deal with what God wanted to do. We wouldn't be able to live in the faith of the daily if we knew the end. We would try to go around certain pieces that need to be there. We would try to avoid certain pain. We would try to manipulate and make them happen, even in the blessing, even in the glory of what Nebuchadnezzar sees in that dream of the head of gold. He cannot help but later in life want to manipulate it and make it happen in real life. God had already told him, your kingdom is like the head of gold. You are the the king of earthly kings. But yet that wasn't good enough. So later on, and I read before, it's about 16, 15, 16 years later, he's built this idol now. What God gave him a vision of, he now makes real life. His dream has come true. The idol is built, the command is made, and a plan is hatched. The the, the malicious and the vile in that culture are now going to come against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Let me ask you something real quick. When you and I struggle to build our own life, when you and I want people to worship us, that is the essence of all pride. We talked about it this morning in Sunday school in James chapter 3. We're talking about it again this morning in Daniel chapter 3. The essence of all pride is having someone else worship me. How small of a God are we actually? Nebuchadnezzar doesn't even know who is worshiping him and who is not. Does that not sound silly to you? He doesn't even know who's worshiping. He is so limited in his knowledge, in his vision, in who he is, in in just being a person. He doesn't even know who is worshiping him. So he's mandating something that he cannot even check in on. He is so limited. He is just a man. And in the midst of all of his folly and all of his striving after when, he runs into a limitation that he doesn't even know if everyone is worshiping him or not. He doesn't know if one person is praying to him or not. He has to be told by others that these three will not bow. They will not worship. Friends, we make, a, we make a very small God. You and I make a very small G God. When you want other people to worship you or you want to be lifted up or you want to be elevated in some way, we do nothing but let them down or let ourselves down. We are a small, small God. If Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold in the, in, the, in the idol of all the nation's kingdom, if that head of gold is an idol that small, you and I are so much smaller than that. Our sphere of influence, the things that we can get done, the resources that we actually have in and of ourselves are minuscule and laughable. 
And yet every day that we wake up with sin in our hearts, we try to strive and we try to build ourselves up. We try to become something that other people need to worship, they need to listen to, they need to bow down to. We just set ourselves and our families up for failure. You and I have been given so much access to the God of the universe. We don't have to try to be a God. You get to serve the God of the universe. He will use you. He will make you. He will draw you in. He will build you up. He will make you a blessing. He will make you a conduit with which his resources flow through you. His peace, his joy, his love flow through us to everyone else. And so in the watering of our own soul, we water so many others. A servant in God's kingdom is far greater than any king this world has ever known. You and I, as the humblest of servants in God's kingdom, have far more resources, far more power, far more strength than any earthly king ever has. And this story and the one in chapter 2 just proves it over and over and over. Here's my question to you. Can the truth be malicious? Yes, And how we deliver it and what we do with it. How we try to hand it off. Who we give it to. When we give it. These these, uh, wise men of Babylon are telling the truth. But they're doing so in a way that is malicious. It's evil and vile. They're doing so in a way to tear something up. Proverbs chapter 6 says six things the Lord hates. Seven is an abomination to God. The seventh thing is he or she who sows discord among brethren. He or she who takes lies or truth and spreads them in a way that harms the person's character, a person's well-being, harms their peace, changes someone else's perspective on them. You and I are to deal with things in life, sin in life, sin against us in a way that is very, very specific to what Jesus has to say. We are to take that truth to that person and deal with it. This passage floored me with this idea because these guys weren't lying. They were telling the truth, but they were malicious in what they were doing. They were delivering the truth in a moment to harm these three. You and I can do the same thing. It is not good enough to just tell the truth. We have to pick the place and the person to tell it. It can be malicious to deliver certain information at a certain time, trying to cause an outcome you want to cause. What did these wise men want to do? They wanted to harm Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Lord had already favored them. The Lord had already honored them. He had already set them ten times, remember chapter 1, ten times above everyone else. And the other wise men didn't like it. My, how fast they forgot what Daniel and these three had done when Daniel stepped forward and made sure they had another breath to breathe and another day to live in chapter 2. Again, we go back to how do the worldly act? How do they react? They have one focus right now. The pleasure and the power of right now. You and I have so much more in way of hope. What happens in this passage? Well, we're going to see the first 13 verses. What happens is pride always bites bites the hand that feeds it. Pride always bites the hand that feeds it. And I want to show it to you in this passage. Keep going with me. Look at verse 14. 
Um, 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Verse 15, Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well, good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Remember their names. Remember their names. God will help. God will protect. Who is like Yahweh? Nebuchadnezzar is challenging not only them, but the God that they serve. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, that's a big deal. How you and I interact with God This day, right now, with the rest of your life, hinges so much on can you and I say that line. The first one is easy. If he wants to deliver us, he will deliver us from you, from that fiery furnace, from anything else. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the golden image that you have set up. There's the rebellion that comes from living in the world. The three in the plea. There's a rebellion. I'm going to give you four R's this morning to go through, and then I'm going to foundation it on one last one. The first one is the rebellion. They're going to rebel against ungodly command. They're going to rebel against the idea that they will worship or bow to anything other than the God of the universe. They are going to rebel because they have to. They cannot, in good conscience, do what the king is asking them to do. In chapter 1, we see the, the, the worldly wisdom and the shrewdness of, we don't want to eat the king's meat, let us eat what God has commanded. We see Daniel operate that way in the world. They're commanded to do one thing, but it's really not a black or white or a strong yes or a strong no. There's moment to work through in shrewdness what is going on. So Daniel says, feed us what the, Lord, the Lord's diet. We will fast. We will drink water, not the king's wine. We will eat vegetables, not the king's meat, not his delicacies. And just give us a shot and let's see what happens. God shows favor in that one as they navigate through the waters. But on this one, there's no navigation. On this one, it is bow. It is worship. And these three will say, no, we cannot. I like what Nebuchadnezzar does in this passage, though. Instead of just tossing them in the fiery furnace or instead of taking somebody else's word for it, listen, Nebuchadnezzar shows more wisdom than some of us have shown at many moments in our life. He sorts it out himself. I do like that. You and I could solve ourselves so much headache in life if we would sort out things that we heard ourselves. But he does that. He loves these guys. Remember, he has honored them. He knows who they are. They've saved the kingdom once. They're going to do it again. But right now, he is angry, and he's going to bring them forward, and they're going to work through this. Will you or will you not? We will not. Verse 15, he challenges not only them, but their God. 
And their answer is simply this. Our life will prove. Our life will just prove it. Either God will deliver or our devotion will prove it. God will deliver miraculously from your hand and that fiery furnace. Or our devotion will prove who God is and what he is capable of. How he has changed us and what he has done. Verse 19 to 23, what's going to happen is there's a reckoning. There's rebellion against ungodly uh, government. There's a rebellion against ungodly tyrants. And now in 19, there's going to be the reckoning. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Why is that? Because he's mad. And why is he mad? Because this was very public and it was a very important occasion and all the people were standing around watching and he got embarrassed. Be careful in certain situations how you react when it's in public. How you react when you get embarrassed. How you react when it was a big deal and something didn't go right. How you react Be careful. This is a very emotional moment. This was a big day for Nebuchadnezzar. And you three have ruined it. So I am going to prove my power. I'm going to let this rage just flow. And so what happens is he says, heat it seven times. Seven times more than usual. And verse 20, And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. 22, Because the king's order was urgent, the furnace overheated. (laughs) The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. You see, pride is always going to bite the hand that feeds it, and rage is always going to create more fire than is intended. When our anger rolls over into rage, we're going to create more fire than we really wanted. We wanted something controlled. We wanted something small. We wanted this person to pay a price. But instead, it spills out over other places, other people, other moments. You cannot control it. Nebuchadnezzar has been embarrassed on his special day. He's going to heat that furnace up like, it's going to, like he's going to kill them more. I'm going to kill them more dead, Right? I'm going to get them. Like, I am so mad right now, they're going to be deader than dead. It's over. Heat it up, heat it up, heat it up. Give me seven times. Get that thing rocking. His rage costs him some of his best soldiers. Now, I'm no king, but I have a pretty good understanding of a best soldier and what that means. I've watched enough war movies talk to enough soldiers to understand what it's like to have someone that's got your back know what they're doing, to be good at their craft. How much more important is it for a king? But yet his rage is going to flow over. It's going to overflow. It's going to spill over. He's been insulted. They hurt my feelings. And he's just going to let it out. And it is going to cost him some of his best Soldiers, let me ask you something. When what has rage cost 
you. Some of your best relationships, some of your best friendships. Has it cost you a spouse? Is it costing you a spouse? Has it cost you your relationship with your children? Has it cost you a job? Has it landed you in jail? What has rage cost you? It cost Nebuchadnezzar some of his best soldiers. I guarantee you the next time he needed to go to war or the next time he needed someone protecting his six, he looked around and thought, I wish I had those guys. Pride is always going to bite the hand that feeds it and rage is always going to release more fire than you wanted to release. You're going to burn up more of the earth. You're going to burn up more of your own life than you wanted to because you can't control it. You cannot control it. Together, these two things, the cost the sinner is going to pay is the best in their life. The best of your relationships, the best of your money, the best of your time, the best of your trust, the best of your intimacy. They're going to cost you those things. When you and I let rage spill out, it's going to cost you some of the best of your life. Why? Because the people closest to you are going to be the ones that get to experience most of it. Nebuchadnezzar is a prideful man. So are these wise men that have done all this. They are living in the rules of pride. They, are, they want to be lifted up. They want to be worshipped. And because of that, they are easily offended. They are constantly frustrated. And then in this instance, everything is so big that the reckoning comes with rage attached. He is so mad that he loses some of his best. Friends, I'm going to beg you all this morning to listen to the the concept of Scripture. Be angry and sin not. Be angry, but don't be rage-filled. Be angry, but control what comes next. How do you do that? You control that through prayer. Going into the throne room of God and saying, I am hurt, I am frustrated, I need help, I need you. Then you control it by dealing with it properly. Taking that information to the person. Then you deal with it in the third way by, again, going into the throne room of God and saying, help me not be bitter. Help me to let this go. Help me to deal with this properly. Pride and rage are dangerous, dangerous fruit. They look good. They smell good. They taste good at first, and they are intoxicating. But when the poison strikes... Or when that overflow comes, you're not paying for it by yourself. You're dragging everybody else through the mess with you. They get to partake when you and I spill it out. What happens in 24? We're watching Nebuchadnezzar. We're watching these wise and and, and the wise men, these ungodly wise men. But what happens now? 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said back, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. It had obviously cooled off a little bit by then. And he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. 
And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over their bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not burned, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. What happens next? The rescue. The rebellion. The reckoning. And the rescue. God shows up. There's no need to have courage when there's no cause to have it. You and I spend most of our life running from things that would bring out of our character very godly attributes. Or we spend most of our life running from things that God would use to change us, make us more like Christ, or that God would use to show off. He would show off in that moment of courage. He would show off in that moment of confrontation or conflict. He would show up and rebuild a relationship. He would show up and push back against some of the evil that is going on in your life, in mine, in your school, at your work. He would show up and show off. You see, if there's no cause to be courageous, there's no courage. These men show tremendous courage. And there's no deliverance without some kind of trial. There's no deliverance without some kind of heartache. There's no deliverance. There's no rescue unless there's something to be rescued from. And so God shows up in this moment. Verse 25, they are not abandoned, right? They were thrown into that fiery furnace alone, but who shows up with them? A fourth. And you and I would say, I would say that is a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus. The same one that shuts the mouths of the lions is there in the fiery furnace. He is there. They are not abandoned. Their ropes are no longer there. That heat singed those ropes right off and they disappeared. They are not bound anymore. Instead of being tied up and tossed in, they are not crippled. They are not lame. They are up and walking through the fire. Like we talk about Peter walking on water as being pretty cool. What do you think about this one? They're up. They're not crippled. They're not bound. They're not hanging out there. They're not abandoned. They're not alone. God is there. He has burnt off their shackles. He has burnt off the ropes that have bound them. They're up and walking, and they are not even harmed. But what if? What if it didn't turn out this way? You see, they had already set in their heart, but if God doesn't, we're still not going to bow. We're still not going to do what you're asking us to do. You see, this story is amazing, but there are hundreds, maybe thousands, where God didn't show up, at least in a way anybody else could see. Psalm 23 says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Some of the people that have worked in hospice can can testify to what goes on when that person crosses over and they know the Lord and what's going on in that room and what's happening there. But what if no one else could see the Lord there? What if it was just them and their God? What if it's like the martyr, I believe his name was John Huss, and John Huss was getting ready, or, or, or no, it wasn't him, hang on. It was in uh, DC Talk, Jesus Freaks. I'm not going to be able to remember his name. I'll bring it back to you next week. But here's his story. I do remember his story. The story was he's going to be burned at the stake the next day. He's going to give his life for the cause of Christ. And some come and they say, listen, if the fire is manageable, can you just raise your hand? 
can you just give us a sign? Like these people were worried. They're paying for their faith. They are finding them, and now they are burning them at the stake. And the next day, you know what happens? God dissolves the binds and he runs off. No, that's not what happens. They light the fire, and it starts, and it builds, and it burns. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And then the story goes like this. Minutes into his execution, where there were no fingers left on his hands, he raised his hands in the air and clapped them together three times. No fingers being burnt at the stake. God was with him. What if instead of not being bound and not being crippled, what if instead of of the deliverance like we see it, to see it as it is, what if it was just them in the fiery furnace being tossed in, but in those moments they were not abandoned? Would it be enough? The stability of the rest of your life hinges on that answer because there will come a moment when there is no deliverance. Deliverance is crossing over. Deliverance is that final breath or that final moment. And in that moment, will it be enough not to be abandoned? Because that's what it means to be Christian. That's what it means to love and to know the Lord. That if you and I find ourselves in the position where the last thing, the last moment on this earth is crossing over and He is there, is that enough? Because if you and I can settle that question now when things are good, if you can settle that question when you're young, the rest of your life will be so strong and so sturdy, you will just live in the hope and the joy of knowing that whatever God does is for your blessing. There's a sifting and a pruning and things that are taking place. Sometimes it's discipline, but sometimes it's just God working with us and knowing what we need. In those moments, is it enough not to be abandoned? Because let me tell you something. There are going to be moments when deliverance doesn't come. You're going to have to go through the mess. You're going to have to walk with a limp. You're going to have to have eyes that, that don't see properly, right? Like that's what some people think about Paul, the rest of Paul's life. When he asks God, prays three times, take this thorn from my flesh, take this thorn from my flesh. And finally God says, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not taking it away. In that moment, is it enough not to be abandoned? Or are you and I living our faith based off of whether or not we get out of this alive, whole, and healthy, and prosperous? They had already built their mindset and their faith around the idea that even if God didn't deliver, he was enough. So now we get to the reward. And again, this part of the passage may not come for you and I, but it comes for them. And so we read it and we love it and we enjoy it. Verse 29, therefore I make a decree, this is Nebuchadnezzar, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. There's reward. What's the reward? Is it to be promoted? That's a pretty good one. What's the real reward? If they had been promoted and yet we were not a part of this story, you and I would not know their names. 
What's the real reward? To be used to bring honor and glory and fame to the name of the God of the universe, to Jesus Christ, the one who has come. Like they are rewarded in this way, but you and I are only talking about them not because they were princes of Babylon. You and I are talking about them because they were stalwarts in the Christian faith. Their courage was rewarded by the king. Their dedication and loyalty were traits that he admired and that he wanted more of. He's not the only one that feels that way. I know some of y'all are ready to get out of here. Their courage is rewarded. Their courage is admired. And so the king is going to lift them up. Do you see how the pride of the worldly wise men has now come to bite them? Wanting what they wanted, they got the polar opposite. Wanting to be next to Nebuchadnezzar, they end up further down the list. Wanting their gods to be correct, they end up with Nebuchadnezzar putting out a decree to honor the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as their Jewish name would say, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. The God that protects, the God that saves, the God that watches, who is like him, nobody else. Nebuchadnezzar is answering the questions. He's answering the questions. He changes their name, and then in chapter 3, he has to come back and bring all their names back up again. Is that not amazing? But it wasn't the only reward. Their testimony was used to make God famous. Today we tell their story not because they were rich and powerful, but because they were used to make God famous in their time and in ours. The real reward for you and I in this world is being used by God to make his name famous. If it happens on a platform that's big, that's fine. Just be faithful. If it happens on a platform that's very small, mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, worker at church, servant here, Awana servant, VBS servant. If it happens on a small platform, that is wonderful. Just be faithful. God sees both. We're not even talking about the reward to come. The three in me, as they come this morning to play, I want to wrap this up for you by looking at the idea of these three in the context of our life too. But how do these three land there? How do they get there? Why are they willing to rebel? Why are they willing to deal with the reckoning? Why do they hold their feet in long enough to be rescued by the God of the universe in a totally miraculous way? Why are they rewarded in a way in this life and even after their death and even in the kingdom to come? Why are they rewarded like that? Because the New Testament word is regeneration. They were new. They were dead and now they are alive. They really believed what it is they claimed to believe. Why is there no power in so many Christian churches? Because we're not really regenerate people. We come and we check the box, but we have no hunger for the Word of God. We definitely have no hunger for prayer. We have no hunger for the accountability and the fellowship and the love of good godly community. We have no hunger for those things, but yet we claim to be Christian. That's not how this works. If, if, if those three are that kind of Christian, they bow immediately. They're probably the first ones to lean down. When the music plays and they bow and it's over and they're good and they're just going to go about their life. But that's not what they could do. That's not who they were. They were really believers 
in what God had told them. That's in chapter 1. What do we see? They have the favor of God on their life. And they have a commitment to the word of God. That's why they look. That's why they look at the servant of Nebuchadnezzar and say, We don't need the king's meat. Just give us what God says is okay. We don't need the king's delicacies. We will do without what this world says is great. And we will just honor our Lord. See, they understand the commitment to God's word. They understand the commitment to God's promises. They're not only will they, will they work for God or with God in the doing of what they do, but they will also work with the fasting of what they will not partake in. That's what really separates them. The world is doing these things. We do not need it. How about chapter 2? What do we see? They are faithful friends and they are faithful in prayer. When Daniel has an issue, he goes to them and says, let's pray to God together. He goes to the three of them. Daniel doesn't walk it by himself. He could have. But instead he ends up with them and he says, pray with me that God reveals what we need. He goes to this group and he leans in and he loves them for their friendship and their fellowship. Why? They are faithful to the promises of God. They are faithful to prayer. And then in chapter 3, they are stalwart believers in God's character and God's power. If you and I believe in God's character, we believe that he's good. If we believe in his power, we, be, we believe he can do whatever he wants. If I believe those two things and I have worked them out, the rest of my life is set. There's a lot less prayer about meaningless things if I believe that my God is good and I believe that he is powerful and he wishes my good. Then there's a lot of peace that comes with that. These three had set those things up. I need to be someone like them, and I need to be surrounded by people like them as well. It's one of the things that makes isolation so scary in the Christian life is that when you and I are isolated, when we're by ourselves, we don't have access to community like this. We end up tripping and failing, and it is just a part of being human. Sheep need a flock, and sheep need a shepherd. These four didn't do it on their own. You and I cannot expect to either. I mean, even Jesus had a group of three that he held very close. You and I need that. You are not stronger than him. You are not more powerful than him. And neither, neither am I. And we would be foolish to disregard the godly precept, the godly prescription of how to live that life in community together. Would you stand with me this morning as they pray? If you need something, if you know something's lacking, as you and I live in this culture where the, the, the cost of believing what you actually believe, it may actually cost you something, we need to be making these decisions now. Especially the young ones that are here this morning. You're in your teens. You're getting set up for life. You're getting set up for college. You're getting set up for school. You need to understand at certain moments you will be required to speak. You will be required to say something on behalf of the God of the universe. There will be moments you can navigate with wisdom. And there will be moments that you have to rebel against ungodly people. Now is the moment you make that decision. Now is the moment you resolve in your heart who the Lord is and who you are in Him. That way when those moments come, you are not surprised and you are not going to fail. Now is the moment to make those decisions. As they play and they sing, if you need something, you come.